going to open in prayer, and then we are going to begin today reading Psalm 19. Not Psalm 119, but 19. Uh, let's pray. O oh Lord our God, kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for assembling your people today to sit under your word, both now in uh, Sunday school uh, and soon in our time of worship. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We pray even now for Andrew, uh, who will come and open your word to us in worship, uh, that you would give him your spirit, give him unction and a burden uh, for the word that he has for us, and we pray that you would make us all attentive hearers, and even as we think today about sitting under your word in worship, uh, help us to grow as worshipers, help us to grow as those who are attentive to your word, who are discerning in the things that we hear and the way that we, uh, we test scripture with scripture. O oh Lord, sharpen us, we pray, by your Spirit working in us and by your Word as we come into contact with it today. We ask that you would uh, help us, O oh Lord, by your hand uh, and by your strength to be listeners and worshipers of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are talking about the ministry of the Word and the worshiping life of the church, and we're making a little bit of a switch. So there are four main elements uh, to uh, biblical worship that we're covering in, in these sections, uh, and you can see them in uh, the Westminster later, uh, the ministries of praise and prayer and word and sacrament. There are other things that are often included in worship, sometimes vows and fastings and thanksgivings and all these other things, and some of these are occasional elements of worship, but the regular and normative elements of biblical worship are those four. Praise and prayer, word and sacrament. And we're making a switch now from those first two to the second two. Uh, in the last three classes that we've had, we discussed praise and prayer. Uh, my hope is that we'll do the next two elements in just two classes. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but we're switching now from those elements that we think of as us offering up to God, uh, us speaking to the Lord, uh, to those elements where we really see the Lord speaking to us. He speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us in his sacraments. What we come uh, to see week after week uh, is, is the Lord revealing himself to us. Sort of a transition between uh, these groups of two, uh, the Lord speaking and, and us speaking, and what we're doing together in this dialogue of worship as we come in. Uh, a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon is known, of course, for his preaching, uh, the prince of preachers, he's often called. Uh, and he says, if I had to choose between the sermon and the prayer, I suppose the sermon would have to go. Uh, now that uh, is telling, uh, I think, in the way that we often look at our worship services, uh, especially in Reformed churches, and this is good, uh, that we lift up. And I, I think it's, it's the right thing to, uh, typically in a Reformed church, uh, the sermon will be the centerpiece of worship. Hopefully, not because the pastor is the centerpiece of worship, although there are some of us with really big heads that think we ought to be, um, but rather that we come to sit under God's word and to be taught by him and to be led by him. Uh, but even Spurgeon said, if we had to choose between the two, I suppose the sermon would have to go. Uh, but let's hear now Psalm 19. I think just helpful to frame our thinking. What I'm hoping that we can do today is, while we're talking about the ministry of the word, just go through several passages of scripture. Uh, this is the goal, is just to see lots of different places in Scripture where the Word shows up in the worship of God's people, 
uh, and where we are incited uh, to go back to the Word. And the first one we're going to look at is Psalm 19. Here's what it says. And notice this introduction. It is to the choir master. So this is not just uh, a personal psalm uh, to be used. Certainly you can use it personally, uh, but this is meant to be used in worship. This is for the choir master, the one who would lead the rest of God's people in worship. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, this is a familiar psalm, one that you probably have heard and know, and we were joking before uh, perhaps some of you came in. Uh, Bill has this one memorized, or at least mostly memorized. Uh, maybe not it's <laughs> not the ESV. Uh, and maybe some of you have memorized this or a portion of it, uh, especially this section in the middle where it talks about the law of the Lord and the testimony and the precepts. Uh, but as we've already mentioned, this is something speaking of God's word, uh, really praising the Lord for what he's given in his word and his revelation, uh, and it's meant to be a part of worship. So notice there are several pieces to this psalm. Just see the way that it's put together. There's that introduction, this is for the choir master, uh, but then it begins to speak of what we would call general revelation. God's revealing himself through nature and the things that he's created. And there's no place where this revelation is not heard. Everywhere you can walk out and see the stars in the sky or see the mountains and the hills, the trees, everything God has created, it speaks of who God is. Uh, and so it goes, verses 1 through 6, speaking of general revelation, uh, verses 7 through 11, speaking of special revelation, God's particular revelation of himself through his word. And there are lots of synonyms that we see here. Uh, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, uh, the rules, uh, and it is raising our estimation of, of what God's revelation is useful for. Uh, in a sense, this is a counterpart to the New Testament, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, where all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correction, reproof, reproof uh, and training in righteousness. 
Uh, and so this is telling us, well, what is God's word good for? Well, very much, actually. It's more to be desired than honey and gold and, and all of these things. It's wonderful that the Lord has revealed himself. And then uh, in the end, verses 12 through 14, it's really a prayer uh, that God would shape his people by his revelation. Uh, notice that end there. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We're talking about God's speech, God's speech in nature, God's speech in his word. And then we're ending with this prayer, Lord, everything I think, everything I meditate on, everything that comes out of my mouth, would you make that acceptable in your sight? Would you make it something uh, that you look on and you are pleased? Because I have been shaped, my speech has been shaped by the way that you have spoken of yourself. And this is a part of worship. Uh, and, and this ought to set us to thinking about what we're doing in worship, and especially this ministry of the word in worship. Um, it, I think, and I hope it's clear to you, that at Redeemer, uh, we've already been speaking in, in this series of the importance of God's word directing our worship uh, and, and even having a prominent place in our worship so that when we pray, often we're praying the words of Scripture. And when we're singing, obviously, and, and often we're singing the words of Scripture. And we, we want to have our worship shaped by the Word, uh, but we also believe that receiving God's Word is an act of worship. Uh, here's what it says in Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 21, section 5, one that we've seen uh, several times as we've gone through this study. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. And then some of the other ones, singing psalms, uh, due administration, and uh, receiving the sacraments. They're all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. So that's what it started with, the reading and the preaching and conscionable hearing of the word. And the Westminster really separates those into two. Uh, that not only is the word read, and we read God's word, but we also expound God's word and through preaching. And so we believe that, that scripture ought to show up in its bare form. We ought to spend time in worship reading God's word. And we also ought to spend time in uh, worship hearing and applying God's word and, and having that shape us. Now, here's a curious thing as well, that everything we've been talking about so far in worship and what we're doing in worship is this idea of, uh, of glorifying God, of giving God praise and honor and glory and raising our estimation of who he is, uh, being shaped by him. Uh, here's the way that Hughes Oliphant Old puts it, worship must above all serve the glory of God. Um, yet... I wonder if we actually stop sometimes and think how God is glorified through the reading of his word and the hearing of sermons. Even in this psalm that we just read, the focus on what God's word is good for is good for us, good for edifying us. It talks of rejoicing our heart and enlightening our eyes and making wise the simple. And so sometimes we come to God's word and here is this distinction we've talked about already in this series. So often lately, worship is being reduced to, well, I do my worshiping while we're singing together, and then we stop the worship portion of our service, and then we go into the teaching portion of our service, and we can have an idea that those two are separated, that we ought to be engaged heart and mind and soul in the singing, but the sermon, well, I can be engaged in mind, maybe, uh, and maybe if it's really moving uh, in heart, but it's not a worship thing, it's a learning thing. 
It, it's this thing where I'm, I'm pumping up my spiritual muscles. I'm, uh, I'm getting better with these things. So, so let me just ask that question. How is it then, uh, if we sometimes think of that, and I, I think that's the wrong way to approach the sermon, um, but how do we reconcile? How is, how is the reading of God's word and the hearing of God's word and the hearing of sermons, uh, how is that an element of worship? How does that serve the glory of God and not just the edification of God's people? There's the big question to start with. How does, how does the reading and the preaching of God's word serve God's glory uh, and not just our needs? Rob? Um, 
Right. So if you love me, you're going to keep. If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. And I think a corollary is you're going to want to know what those commandments are so you can keep them. Here's a demonstration of our love for the Lord and glorifying who He is. Uh, how many of you have been at the church long enough to remember Michael Lawrence? Okay, uh, he's now a big fancy pants pastor somewhere. Um, and I found this quote on the internet, of all places, from Michael Lawrence. And it's actually a quote on prayer, but I, I want you to pay attention to what he's, he's saying here. Uh, he says in Scripture, and he, again, he's talking about prayer. In Scripture, pouring out our hearts to God is never the essential point of prayer. The point of prayer is realignment, as our hearts assume a posture of dependence and humility before God. Prayer places our needs in the perspective of God's sufficiency, our problems in the perspective of his sovereignty, and our desires in the perspective of his will. Prayer is not a monologue. Rather, prayer invites God to have the last word with us and for his word to shape and define us. I think there is a wonderful relationship between what he's saying here about prayer and what we're doing each week with hearing the word of God. And the error that he's talking about in prayer is the same error that we commit on the other side uh, when we think about hearing God's word. So what's the error with prayer? The, the error with prayer is that we think of it sometimes as a cathartic experience. It's just emptying. I've got all these burdens and I've got to get them off my chest. So I go to the Lord and, and don't I feel better when I've spoken to the Lord? Uh, and, and that's not really what it's about. It's about aligning our wills uh, with what God would want for us and praying after his name and the things that are according to his will and shaping us and he calls it a realignment. Well, the error on the other side in hearing God's word, not that it would be an emptying experience, but that it's primarily a filling experience, that we come and, oh, it was a good worship service today because I learned a lot during the sermon. 
And I couldn't stop taking notes because that pastor, he just crammed so much in there that I was just writing furiously. And, you know, I, I had to use several pieces of paper or whatever. And, and we judge the spiritual experience by how well we've been filled. But it's really a realignment. Uh, and it's, it's God's word working in us and shaping us according to his will. And it's this act of worship when we come to the Lord. Uh, God's word directs our lives and God is glorified. God's word displays the beauty of the Son, and the Lord is glorified. God's word proclaims the promises and the faithfulness and the justice and the love of God, and the Lord is glorified. And I think this is where we need to begin when we understand God's word as an element of worship, both in its reading and in its preaching and its hearing. That what God's word is doing and what we're doing when we're engaging with God's word in worship is that we are being changed and we're being directed to the glory of God. Uh, this is, as, as Rob mentioned, this is a means that God uses to shape and direct his people. Uh, this is a tool in his hands. It is his living and active tool to lay us bare and to bind us back together, to revive our souls and to give us joy and to make us see the promises of the gospel and all of these things. We could go on and on and on, but this is what happens when we engage with God's word and worship. God is glorified because we are changed and shaped. This is what I, I hope that you'll take away from this. Now, uh, what I want to do for the rest of the class is just step through several passages where we see the importance of God's word uh, in the worship life of his people. Uh, and we're going to begin with Nehemiah chapter 8. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a really interesting passage, so let me set up the context a little bit before you get there. Um, and as we go through these, these several texts, I want to have the same question for each. So as, as we're reading through this, I want you to be thinking of this in the back of your mind. How does this text help us to understand the role of the word read and preached in the context of worship? Okay, so when we're reading Nehemiah 8, how does this help us to understand the importance of the word as it's read and it's preached in the context of worship? What do we see here that should inform the way we also approach God's word and what we do in worship? But uh, Nehemiah 8, obviously uh, this is Nehemiah and Ezra working together uh, to rebuild and to reestablish uh, the kingdom in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, really. Uh, they've been sent back by the Persian kings now uh, to reestablish these things. So we're talking post-exile, pre-Christ. And I think that makes a little bit of a difference just to situate where we are in the biblical narrative, uh, that it is after they've already been in the promised land and they've had to leave the promised land, uh, and they're now coming back into it with a renewed focus, in a sense. There's a different focus to the worship of God's people after the exile than there was before the exile, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But here we see Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, and it focuses on Nehemiah's friend Ezra. Here's what it says. Uh, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's 18 verses, but um, it's important for us to see what's happening here. And we're going to do most of our heavy lifting in this passage. So if we don't get to some of the other ones, that's okay. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akib, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out. And brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, so that main question that we have, we've just read this passage, uh, and the question is, how does this help us to understand uh, the function of God's word read and heard among his people as an act of worship? What did you see there? What did you notice? Ronnie. So that's a really important point and a part of what's going on here. Uh, so 
notice the, the context. It says that this happened. Um, where is it? Uh, the second verse. All who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Well, this is the month where on the 15th day they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm sorry, the 10th the day maybe. Uh, they'd celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And what you see at the end of this passage, the assumption is that they read through all of the Torah over seven days. They stood and read for long periods of time, and they read the first five books of Moses. And in Deuteronomy, he commands them, and they even quote it here in the end, you shall go out and you shall dwell in booths. And they are cut to the core that nobody has been doing this. Nobody has been keeping God's word since it said Jeshua, which is Joshua, the son of Nun, who brought the people into the land. It's interesting that in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people, after I die, you're not going to obey these words. You didn't obey these words while I was with you, and after I'm dead, you're not going to obey them any better. And they don't. Uh, and, and they've gone into exile, and they've now come back, and they've come to God's word, and it moves them. It actually affects the people. Uh, so it incites to obedience, but it, it lays them bare, as we've been talking about already. We see our sin when we come uh, to God's word, and they are incredibly engaged with God's word. They're listening, they're hearing, uh, and, and they're being sharpened and being convicted and and bound up by God's word, and it's having an effect on the people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not supposed to be a day of, of mourning. Um, now, this is often what the Lord does, um, but notice also that um, the, the Levites and Ezra, the priest scribe, did you notice he's called both in this passage? That's an important uh, understanding of what has happened to the worship of the Israelites as they've been in exile and now they've come back. He's a priest. What should a priest be doing in the temple? Sacrificing. What is a priest doing in the temple? He's reading God's word. Uh, he comes back and he's known as Ezra the scribe. And he's directing, and, and the Levites are directing the people. Um, and so that's part of, of what the leadership in the church is supposed to do uh, to help interpret not that you're not able to interpret. Not that you can't go home and read the Bible on your own and come away and, and be filled and energized and, and, and consoled and comforted and all these other things. But it's part of the scribes and, and those who the Lord has put in places of authority. The, the, the pulpit really is a, a place of authority, though we don't think of it in those same terms in our culture. Um, but to direct the people, what is the proper response to God's word as we read it? Um, and yeah, so, so they even direct and, and redirect. Now this, I think, brings up an interesting point of how we are engaged with God's word. Uh, they were listening uh, at least well enough to recognize sin uh, and then to be directed by it to obedience. Um, and, and I think part of their worship involved the way that they were uh, engaged with God's word. Um, I have a quote here that my wife found for me. Uh, from Little Town on the Prairie. So this actually is our text for today, Cynthia. Um, this is uh, the chronicle of Laura and her family uh, as they are being established uh, in this little town and there is a church. And this is Laura's experience uh, with the preaching in the church. Here's what it says. Laura even enjoyed Reverend Brown's preaching. What he said did not make sense to her, but 
He looked like the picture of John Brown in her history books come alive. His eyes glared, his white mustache and his whiskers bobbed, and his big hands waved and clawed and clenched into fists, pounding the pulpit and shaking in the air. Laura amused herself, too, by changing his sentences in her mind to improve their grammar. She need not remember the sermon, for at home, Pa required her and Carrie only to repeat the text correctly. Then when the sermon was over, there was more singing. Now, that's one way of approaching uh, the sermon. There's another uh, passage, if you've read uh, David Copperfield, uh, where it speaks of looking out the window and just imagining all these other things. And the maid would often look out the window and uh, check on the house to see that it wasn't being robbed or burning down. But if, uh, if he were to look out the window, she would scold him. No, he was to stare at the minister and focus. And, uh, and I think part of this, if we're to be moved by God's word, uh, the time of reading and hearing of God's word ought to be the kind of thing that we're really engaged in. So what does that look like? How do you stay engaged uh, when God's word is read? How do you make sure that this isn't the sort of thing that, no, let me amuse myself by rearranging, I like that one, by rearranging the pastor's sentences in your mind to improve their grammar. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we engage with what's going on when, uh, when this really is, you know, when we're singing, we've got to sing the words. When we're praying, we, speak, we spoke about this a while ago, uh, that it's important for us to, to be engaged with what's being said so that we can add our amen, and, and so it is also with the sermon. How do we engage well enough with the sermon, with the reading of God's word, so that, so that it can actually change us? What's required? What should we do?
question in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, what is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it and hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Do you notice how much the, the engagement with God's word begins before the sermon is preached and continues after the sermon has ended. That they, they prepare themselves with prayer, they meditate on it later and bring out the fruits of it. Kathy, were you going to add to that?
we ought to be doing when we come together for worship and, and sitting under God's word. We ought to stir one another up uh, to love and good works and, and to hear and to obey. Scott, were you going to add that? I feel uh, this is very shallow after Kathy's saying about part of all this. <laughs> but I can remember a point in my life where I realized that part of preparing for worship wasn't what was not staying up late Saturday night. So notice from Nehemiah 8 that help to fill out what ought we to be doing in worship and how does God's word read and preached uh, help us or what, what we ought to be doing with it in worship. Well, God, I expect this joy. So apparently there is so much conviction going on yeah. that you know, the lay prayer I think there's got to be some balance there. Um, I think the conviction they were getting was real conviction, uh, but I think it was good that the elders and the Levites were were helping them to understand grace. Uh, in fact, that you know it, it wouldn't be great if they were to look at God's word and say, "Oh, we feel pretty good because we kept all this." No, no, no. Grace comes in their seeing their sin and then recognizing, "Oh, but the Lord still has brought you out of exile and back to Himself, and it's the Lord who's doing." That's why you ought to rejoice. It's interesting that they go from that into the Feast of Booths, which is a reminder of the time that they spent wandering around in the wilderness, and yet the Lord provided for them. Not by their strength, not by their might, certainly not by their obedience. They wandered for 40 years, but the Lord provided for them. And here they are uh, singing the songs of Zion once again in Zion, in, in God's land that he has given to his people. And it's a reminder of God's grace and what he's done for them. So maybe you've sat under some of those ministries where the pastor finds it either really easy to preach grace uh, and there's no sin and conviction, or really tempting to preach sin and conviction and there's no grace. Either one of those wears out God's people and being spiritually jealous. Uh, so again, it's the pastor's responsibility to make sure that there's a balance there. It's also our responsibility to, to engage with the word that's being preached and, and to understand the whole context. Um, very often, we'll preach on a passage that is Largely one or largely the other. Judah and Tamar last week were sin. There was a lot of sin, but there's grace. Uh, and there are passages, there are lots of grace, but, but why grace? Well, because of sin and seeing that balance there. Absolutely. Seeing the whole context that's going on. Who was engaged in this?
worshiping event. Cindy, you're mouthing the answer? Everybody, the men and the women and all who, who can hear and understand. Uh, who ought to be sitting through the service uh, when the word is read and preached? Everybody who can understand. Yes, uh, it's, it's not a coincidence that we don't have a children's church program. Um, and that normally our, uh, our nursery ends at the age of three. We want our children, even the young ones, to be here hearing and picking up as much as they can, little by little, as they go along. But that means all the rest of us as well. Um, it's actually, so this is a, a mirror of the end of Deuteronomy, where Moses is preparing them to do this. And he says in Deuteronomy 31, I believe, uh, he prepares them, he says, when you come into the land that the Lord is giving you, uh, on, actually it was, it was then a, a year of jubilee thing. On the seventh year, you'll gather everybody together and he says, you'll gather the men and the women and the young ones and the sojourners and aliens among you. Everybody uh, ought to be gathered together to hear the word. So this is for believers and non-believers. Uh, there is a, a point at which in the service, uh, I'll stand behind the table and say, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not for you. Well, the preaching of God's word is for everyone. Uh, it's for those who know already and believe already and those who don't know and believe already. It's those who are growing in their faith and those who have been around a long time. Yeah, everybody was engaged. Everybody was there. Oh, good. I think we've, uh, we've gotten through that pretty well. Um, let's turn to Luke chapter 4. And this is where we'll end. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, and I'm going to read to verse 22. So speaking of Jesus, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all, who, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? All right, so here's another passage. Uh, and what we see is the same pattern that was begun with Nehemiah and Ezra uh, back then in Nehemiah chapter 8 is now a, a little more systematized and happens week by week. Uh, and Jesus is now engaged in, in a part of this. So what do you see here that ought to inform the way we approach God's word in worship? Do we see anything that's helpful? It starts with the word, as it ought to. Uh, again, th this isn't just the thoughts of men, but we're to be drawn back to God's word. Yeah? Yep. Which they also did in Nehemiah. 
um, they stood up as the words were being read. Um, yeah, so that, that's interesting to, to know that. Uh, and why is it done? Well, it's, it's an act of reverence. Uh, it's an act of uh, attending to the word that's being read uh, and showing, you know, Um, it says that Jesus stood up to read. Yeah. It says that he stood up to read in verse 16, uh, and it says he sat down later. Um, but this, this would have been the general practice. It would have mirrored Nehemiah 8, where all the people stood up. Um, and, and it's, so what it's saying there that he sat down, uh, there was behind the pulpit in a Jewish synagogue what was called the seat of Moses, uh, a large throne-like seat. Uh, Jesus says later, uh, of the Pharisees, this idea of authority in the pulpit. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, Matthew chapter 23, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Uh, so there was this actual seat in a synagogue where the Pharisees and the rabbis would sit, and there was authority coming uh, from the preaching of God's word, and Jesus sat in that seat of authority. Um, but they all probably would have stood up for the reading. You're right. Um, and, and this sort of act of reverence, you know, a, a, uh, an important person walks in the room, in a courtroom, a judge walks in, everybody all rise, um, or the bride walks in at a, a wedding, everybody stands up and turns to look, the same sort of idea, God's speaking to his people, right? Um, now, here, here's a, an aspect that we don't see, you have to pry a little bit more into the text, um, but what would have been happening at this time uh, is that there were two readings in the synagogue. Uh, as I mentioned already, there would have been a reading of the Pentateuch, which has already been done, and then the rabbi, whoever he was, and in very many cases a visiting rabbi, a recognized uh, teacher of scripture would come and would be invited to, to read uh, whatever passage they thought would help the people to understand uh, the original text. Uh, the, the first text that was read, he would read a second from the prophets. This is what Jesus does. It doesn't tell us what the first reading was, but it says that the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he found the place where it was read. Jesus picked Isaiah chapter 61. He had this in mind. Here's a message uh, that you're going to hear from me. Uh, and then he sat down, and, and he began to preach. Um, so I want to give you a, sort of a side note. You're going to see a change in the way that we go through Scripture in our services beginning next week. Not beginning today, but beginning next week. Um, we are changing the way that we do our Old and New Testament readings. The last however long uh, we've been doing it, uh, we have specifically picked texts that help to expand upon whatever we're preaching upon. Um, but we're changing that slightly. Uh, we're, we're now picking books rather than individual texts that just give us more of a context of God's story and what's going on and, and the idea is to see more of a breadth of God's word rather than just the depth. Uh, so we'll get depth in the sermon, uh, but that depth will be filled out by some of the breadth. So, so what are we doing? Well, we're still going to have an Old and New Testament reading, but they're going to be sequential, the way that they would have been uh, in the synagogue, the way that they are in very many churches. Beginning next week, we're going to start in Romans for our New Testament and in Hosea for the Old Testament. Uh, so we're just going to go uh, week by week we're going to progress through Romans, we're going to progress through Hosea, and we're also going to progress through teaching, through uh, continuing the narrative of Joseph uh, in Genesis. So you'll see that next week. Don't be alarmed uh, when, when, hey, we've been in Romans an awful long time. Well, yes, we have. 
Uh, and this is for more exposure for God's people so that we would see week on week, text on text, the way that God's story is unfolding. And that would have been what Jesus was doing here. Um, but he, he picks his own text and he makes his own application. Uh, this is an, an important aspect to understand the way the church grew in the New Testament times. Why is it that Paul could have a hearing with the Jews? Well, because he was a recognized Pharisee. He was a teacher. He was one who was used to sitting in the seat of Moses. And so he would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they'd say, who are you? And he'd say, well, I'm Saul of Tarsus. I sat under the feet of Gamaliel. And they'd say, oh, Gamaliel, sit in the seat of Moses and teach us. And he would begin to teach. Uh, and they would read uh, the Pentateuch, uh, and he would probably read from some prophet, and he would begin to tell them, Jesus is the Messiah. And they go, wait a minute. Uh, we weren't ready for this, but here's this teacher, and sometimes he would get more of a hearing. It's interesting just to see the way that these things happen, uh, and, and the foundational role that preaching play, play, played. Now, we sometimes think Paul speaks of, you know, I want to preach the gospel. He writes to the Romans, interestingly enough. He writes to the Romans the most theologically complete letter that we have from Paul. The whole gospel, start to finish, laid out, uh, and it's in Romans, an application and everything. And he writes them this magisterial letter, and he says, for this reason I'm anxious to preach the gospel to you. Paul, we don't need your preaching. We've got your letter, right? We've got this. He says, no, no, no. I want to preach to you. And we think of Paul preaching the gospel, and that's what he did. But it wasn't just sort of always open air, uh, you know, let me gather a crowd on this side of the street. But it, it happened systematically in synagogues week after week as Paul would go in and they'd read from the Pentateuch and he'd say, oh, I, I know a prophet uh, that speaks about that. And, and let me find it. Uh, and let me tell you about Jesus, who's the Christ. Um, notice also what Jesus is doing here. Uh, whatever passage they read from the Old Testament, he reads from uh, whatever the passage they read from the Pentateuch, he read from Isaiah, and he said, here's the point. It's me. Not me, but you know, Jesus is saying that. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So there's, uh, even Christ in his preaching had a, a Christocentric focus. You know, who, is, who is the center point of, of our relationship with God the Father? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Now, this is what he spoke on the road to Emmaus. He began to show them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so this is another aspect of what we try to do in our worship and our, our reading and our preaching. Do you see anything else in, in Luke chapter 4 before we end today? Was the last time you heard a sermon that short? No? This is like Jonah chapter 4. Yet 40 days and then it will be overthrown. That's it. I'm out of here. Uh, it is, Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty good summary, yeah. They, they do say that they uh, were marveling at the words that were falling from his mouth. So it's continued. This is, this is summarized. But here's the main point, uh, that it was, it was looking at him. Now, the other text that I, I had in mind, uh, and maybe here are some things that you can meditate on later, it's the passage that I already mentioned from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What does it mean for God's word to show up uh, in a demonstration of the spirit of power and focused on Christ and him crucified. So we've moved from Old Testament synagogue-type worship to Christ's own uh, preaching in the synagogues and then Paul's preaching of the gospel uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then if you were to look at 2 Timothy's cha 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, uh, you would see it passing on to another generation, to one who is not an apostle. Uh, and what does he tell Timothy but preach the word? 
So the end of chapter 3 is talking all about Scripture, and God's Word is, uh, is, all Scriptures are God-breathed and inspired and useful for all these things to perfect the man of God, uh, to make them competent for, for every good work. And then he charges Timothy, preach the Word. Timothy is, is a pastor like the pastors you have known, who doesn't have the authority to write new Scriptures or to give new revelations, but his job, his task uh, is to lay these things before the people of God so all of this stuff would happen, teaching and correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. That comes from the word being preached, and it's part of the worship of God's people. Uh, so I'll leave you with those things, and, and next week we will move on to the ministry of sacrament. Uh, but let's end in prayer today. Gracious Lord our God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would make us humble hearers of it, uh, that you would help us, O oh Lord, to hide it in our hearts, to bring forth its fruit in our lives. Help us to meditate upon it. Help us to receive it with uh, truth, with faith, with love, with meekness, with readiness of mind. Help us to receive it as the very words of God. Uh, as we hear it read, as we receive it preached, even today as we come uh, to hear from Exodus in the way that you have revealed your own character to your people. O oh Lord, make us hearers and doers of your word. We pray this for your sake and your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.